Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at pmlessonslearn.com. Hello, and welcome to the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. This is podcast number 163. We are recording this session on the 7th of August, 2014, and we are totally focused on the fifth edition of the PMBOK Guide. My name is Dana Safford. I'm the host for the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Calls. I've been a PMP since version 2 of the PMBOK Guide. I'm also a certified ITIL version 3 expert and a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. I have over 25 years of project management experience in the IT industry. I'm currently an escalation manager at Red Hat, and in this role I take a very complex situation that affects a Red Hat customer's enterprise production environment, and I manage a project with a virtual technical team that quickly resolves the issue. So remember, you do not have to have the term project manager in your job title to actually be a project manager. As far as announcements go, we're still in need of volunteers. We've got two other calls we'd love to get going. you hear about those in a moment. So if you've got some time to give back to the project management community, we'd love to have you volunteer to help us out. All of this stuff is on our website, www.pmlessonslearn.com. So please consider volunteering. Our presenter for this session is me, of course, and our topic is PMLL Project Human Resource Management Part 2, PMBOK 5E. This is the second of two sessions that it took us to make our way through the human resource management knowledge area. On the 31st of July, 2013, the fifth edition of the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge, also called the PMBOK Guide, became the basis for the Project Management Professional or PMP exam. This month's PMP study group call continues the deep dive into the changed portions of the PMBOK Guide, fifth edition, or 5E, is known to be called. In this session, we will finish the focus on the Project Human Resource Management Knowledge Area as we look at the last of four processes that belong in that knowledge area as laid out in the fifth edition. I will provide insight and practical examples of everything you need to know to build your critical knowledge mass and pass the PMP exam on the first attempt. If you have not already downloaded a copy of this session's presentation, please do so. If you're in the live free screen sharing.com virtual meeting room, the file is in the meeting resources box. When you log in, you'll see a bunch of arrows next to the file names in the middle of the screen. So hit those and download the files. If you are not in the virtual meeting room, to find out how to download the files and podcasts for all of our PM Lessons Learned sessions, go to www.pmlessonslearned.com. And in the left-hand navigation column, you will see a link to files and presentations. And just follow those directions. It will take you over to our file area. And over in the monthly PMP exam group call file area, you will see the slides for this session. File name is labeled PMLL Project Human Resource Management Part 2, 7 Aug 14, PMBOK 5E. It's a PDF file. Its title is exactly the same thing. PMLL Project Human Resource Management Part 2, 7 August 2014, PMBOK 5E. So it's very clear we're talking about 5th edition. In that monthly PMP exam study group call file area, you will also see a PMBOK 5th edition brain dump, a PMBOK 5th edition study resources file. I've just updated that one, so there's a new file there. I've updated a couple of things that have now switched over to the 5th edition. And a PMBOK 5th edition ITTO list file as well. And also remember that the Internet is a very big place. 
If you choose to use study material from another source, make sure you know it's PMBOK base. Now that July 31, 2013 is well behind us, we're a year beyond it now, you want material based on the fifth edition of the PMBOK. You should remember there's roughly about a 50% difference over the fourth edition. It's mostly in the knowledge groups, the processes, and their ITTOs, although there are a few other things as well. But that's where the bulk of it is. Every single of them processes receives some type of change, so be aware of that. Anything less than fifth edition is going to be bad. We're speaking of bad, there are still a lot of evil people out there that will sell you material from the fourth edition and even the third editions of the PMBOK. Some study guides are still out there in bookstores or and on websites for sure. So if the material that you're using doesn't explicitly say it is based on the fifth edition, leave it alone, especially if you're plunking down money. You don't want to use something that's going to steer you in the wrong direction. Okay. So we are PMLessonsLearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. I thank you in advance all those participating in this month's live conference call and those who download and use the podcast. Let's get started. I'm going to shift over to the slide deck now. And the first slide contains a summary of our PMLessonsLearn.com free conference calls. This is the monthly PMP exam study group call that we're on right now. Why? Because it's the first Thursday of August, first Thursday of the month. And on the second Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned Job Shot call back, but we need some volunteers to do that. It's where folks in transition or with a need to identify a potential career path can possibly go to help each other out. And finally, on the third Thursday of the month, we'd love to hold our best practices call again, but we need volunteers there as well. And this call would normally provide presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. So if you can volunteer help us out. It would be nice if you could do that. And you can also listen to previous calls and download the podcast and the slides. All that stuff is on our website, www.pnlessonslearn.com. And please join our Yahoo and LinkedIn groups. Both of those are aptly named PM Lessons Learned. So I'm going to move on to the next slide and talk about our call norms. This is an interactive call. I'd love to have you participate, but I've muted your lines, so we keep the background noise down to a bare minimum here. So when you would like to ask a question or if I pause to ask any questions, you'll need to do a star six to unmute your phone, and then you can get my attention and such. Yell my name out. I don't mind being interrupted at all. I'd rather have you ask a question when it's fresh in your mind instead of at the end of the presentation when you're going to forget it, like me. So we'll go through that back and forth, and then we'll find once you're satisfied with the answer that I provide, I'll ask you to do yet another star six and remute your phone. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. Here's our email address. If you'd like to volunteer for something or have any questions about the process, anything along those lines, it is pmpstudy at pmlessonslearn.com. So send us an email and let us know how you're doing, especially if you've passed the exam. Let us know that you passed and that we had a hand in that. We'd love to get some more testimonials on our website when you pass on the first attempt. Let's move on to the next slide. Here's a bit of legalese here. The participants in this call are meant to use the contents of this session as additional study material because much of it comes from an actual study guide. It comes from the Project Management Professional Exam Study Guide, the seventh edition, seventh edition, uh, written by Kim Heldman, part of the Cybex series put out by John Wiley and Sons. You see the ISBN number right there to make sure you get the right edition. As you would think, since it's the seventh edition we're talking about, there's six other editions plus a whole lot of other things that Kim Heldman has done as well out there. You need to make sure you have the seventh edition of this one. Other study guides are in the same boat. The edition number of the study guide does not necessarily correlate to the fifth edition. So you don't think version five of a particular study guide is for the fifth edition of the PMBOK. doesn't work that way. So make sure you align that stuff correctly. And all this stuff is used with the permission of the publisher. I'm a registered instructor with John Wiley. 
going to move on to the next slide. And we, this is the title slide. Basically, we're going to be talking about the project human resource management area. We're on the second of two sessions. It's taken us to get through this. It's the 7th of August, 2014. Move on to the next slide. And we see basically the big table in Chapter 3 that lists all of the 47 processes in a grid that's 10 rows and five columns and a bunch of things in the intersection of each cell. Some things have nothing in them. Some things have six things in them. It depends on what we're talking about. You see a yellow bar right halfway through the, uh, that table in the Project Human Resource Management area. Uh, that is uh, the area we've been talking about. We are going to be talking about one process today in this session. It is the Develop Project Team area. We, you notice that is in the Executing Process Group. I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we'll get into our agenda. Basically, we're talking about develop project team, process number 9.3 in the project human resource management area. We're only doing one this time because it's going to take us an hour to get through this. There's a lot of stuff to talk about here. So we split that off from last time so that we wouldn't go for two hours or something along those lines. We'd do an hour per session roughly in that ballpark somewhere. We'll move on to the next slide. And we'll get into some more general stuff here. We're now looking at the organizational chart style depiction of the project human resource management knowledge area. So you see an organizational chart style thing with a human resource overview way up at the top. For the knowledge area, you see four boxes for each of the four processes that are in the HR area. You see three of them are grayed out because we talked about them last time. So we've only got the one process left, 9.3, develop project team. This is a bit of an eye chart. You can see there's a bunch of stuff there. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll see a bit better, a bit easier to see the horizontal depiction of the develop project team process, process 9.3. We see one box for each of inputs, tools, and techniques, and outputs. And we see that it has three inputs, seven tools and techniques, Although there's a lot more stuff to talk about than just seven things in there, as you'll see in a little bit. And then two outputs. You see a numbering scheme here. The numbering scheme is important for studying, not so much for the exam. So if we were to be talking about the training tool and technique of the develop process team topic, we're actually talking about item number 9.3.2.2, which is a lot to remember, but that's just for studying especially when you find that some of these tools and techniques are used multiple times throughout the various processes. We don't see so much repetition in the human resource area, but in some cases there is, so that the numbering scheme helps you to study. It's not on the exam. You don't have to worry about it. It's mainly there for studying. Right, so let's move on to the next slide, and we'll start to get into a little bit deeper as to what's going on. Now we're talking about developing the project team, and just like it sounds, it's all about developing your team. You've got your team, your team is acquired, you have the people assigned, and now you've got to create an open, encouraging environment for your team so that it will begin to function in a coordinated group manner. There's no outliers anywhere. Everyone knows what the end game is. They're all marching to the same tune at the same time in the same direction. Another way to look at that. And projects are performed by individuals, and the better they work together, the smoother and more efficient things are going to be. Pretty easy, pretty straightforward. It's management 101, if you will. As a project manager, you really need to know that. Move on to the next slide. And as much as we're talking about team development here, all teams are made up of individuals. So when we talk about team development, we're really talking about individual development as well. You've got 
five people on your team, we're talking about five different individuals. Or if you've got 300 people on your team, we're talking about 300 different individuals. But they all work together, so you have to pay attention to all of them at the same time in order to make sure things are flowing nicely so that you don't have any issues later on as time wears on and you don't want any issues to come up. So you want to pay attention to the individuals as well as the entire team. And you probably have to do some development as time goes on. We'll get into that in a little bit. And you want to make sure that depending upon the type of organization you are in, if you're in a functional organization where none of the people on your project actually work for you, they all work for somebody else, and they are participating in your project, then you want to make sure that you're working with that functional manager to provide the people on your team with the things they need in order to be successful for your project in the short term but you wanted to be successful in the company, in the organization, whatever it happens to be in the long term as well, especially if they're really good people because you might want to back on another project that you're running. Most projects don't last forever, and eventually you're going to be doing another project to someone you really like and they like you. Chances are you'll be able to get them back on another project. Let's just move on to the next slide, and we will talk about the inputs for develop project team. There are three of them. I will read them off in case you are walking the dog or doing the dishes, something along those lines. They are project management plan, project staff assignments, and resource calendars. Let's so move on to the next slide. And we'll hit all of those on one slide. We've hit all of these before in other sessions, but we'll do a quick review here just in case you missed some of that. The human resource management plan is there because it's going to provide you with guidance on how you are going to be managing your human resources. There would be a piece in there, maybe in your scope statement that says who's assigned to your team, how you need to manage things, what policies and processes you need to use, things along those lines that all gets pulled into your human resource management plan, and you have to live by it. It's very clear what's going on. Right? So that's what the human resource plan is all about as an input. Then your project staff assignments. As I mentioned, sometimes in the scope statement, you'll have an assignment right in the scope statement, but most of the time you're able to pick and choose or such your team members, but it's just as it sounds. You've already, in the last process, the acquire team, you've had people assigned to you. You know who's on your team. They know what they're going to be doing, what they will be doing, and now it's just a matter of using the tooling techniques to get them going along the way. And finally, resource calendars. Everything has a calendar. People have calendars, but so don't bulldozers and cranes and even lumber and materials. Dirt has a resource calendar. If you have to have a certain amount of dirt in place at a certain time, then dirt has a calendar. Right? So you need to understand what the calendars are to make sure, in the case of human resource management, when people are going to be available. You need to make sure they're available when you need them, and you need to be able to release them when they're done doing that piece of your project, because chances are they're in demand, they need to go work on another project, something along those lines. You don't always keep all your human resources for the entire duration of your project. And the resource calendar tells you and tells them where they have to be and when. Let's move on to the next slide. And we've got a bunch of tools and techniques here. There are actually seven major bullets. I'll read them off in case you're on a plane or on a bus. They are interpersonal skills, training, team building activities, ground rules, co-location, recognition and reward, and personal assessment tools. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of stuff here. Under team building activities, I'm also going to talk about team development phases, team focus, 
communication, and effective team characteristics. And then under recognition and reward, I'm going to talk about motivational theories, leadership and management and power. And just this one section here is the reason why this is a separate hour-long session because there's a lot of stuff in there that we have to go through. All right, so let's move on to the next slide and begin that process of going through all this stuff. First is interpersonal skills. These are often referred to as soft skills as well. Sometimes they're referred to as emotional intelligence, but emotional intelligence is a really focused area that involves more how to deal with people and such. So it isn't as generic as a soft skill is, because soft skills is all about leadership and influence and negotiation and stuff along those lines. Emotional intelligence is a bit more narrowly focused. But sometimes you'll see it there, so we popped it in there just to make sure. But soft skills and interpersonal skills basically go hand in hand. They can be learned. It's possible to learn a soft skill, but there are some people who are more adept at learning soft skills than others. There are some people whose temperament or their personality is not conducive to actually dealing so much with people hence needing soft skills to deal with people because most of the time when it's a soft skill, it's dealing with a person in some way, shape, or form, either by power, by leadership, by conflict, and things along those lines. So some people just can't cope with people and hence they won't be able to learn soft skills as easily. But what you will need is a general knowledge of management skills to understand how to generally manage things, manage people, manage various pieces of projects and the like, and have the negotiation skills and the influence to actually make some things happen and to stay on schedule for the most part. Two bottom bullets down there. The fifth edition actually pulls all of the various soft skills and sticks them into Appendix X3 down in the back of the PMBOK guide now. We have Appendix X3 covering interpersonal skills. It's enough to do in a separate session, so that's what we're going to do. One of the sessions, after we get that with the 47 processes, we'll get those out of the way in another six or eight sessions, and then we'll focus on a few other things. One of those things is going to be interpersonal skills. So you can look forward to a separate presentation on that. I'm going to move forward to the next slide. And we'll talk about training. Now, training, as it sounds, is all the activities that are involved in enhancing people's ability to get the job done. And by people, we mean project team members, because we're talking about a project here. Now, training can be formal. You go to a class, sit down with a bunch of other people, watch a presentation, watch a video, whatever, take a test. That's all can be part of training. But it can be informal as well. It can be looking over somebody's shoulders or, or shadowing somebody is also part of training as well, so formal or informal. When project team members lack the necessary management skills or technical skills, they can be developed as part of the project work. So part of your planning in the human resource management plan will say that if a project individual does not meet a certain threshold of skills, then here are the classes, here's the training that's required to get them to where they need to be. And you'll include the cost of that training. You'll send down the bullet down there. How about that? Cost of the training in your project plan so that you can make sure that all of your project team members are where they need to be skill-wise, whatever that happens to be, for your particular project. And it works out if it's a formal scheduled training, keep track of the cost. But if it's shadowing then or unplanned training, then maybe you don't have to keep track of cost so much because you're already paying them anyway to be there. But make sure that any non-planned training takes place as well. We talked about observation last time around, and that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be looking at people to say, well, maybe John Smith really doesn't have the level of skill we thought we had, so we're going to give him some either informal training or formal training. 
It will go either way. And another thing you can do is as the project nears an end, perhaps there is an individual or a bunch of people in your project who have the skills for this project, but they've done a fantastic job. You're way under budget. You're way ahead of schedule. And since you're way under budget, you can use some of that money in most companies, and certainly for the exam, if you're under budget, you can offer to give the money back, which is always a good thing to offer, but you could also keep some of that money out and pay for training to reward people to get them to the next level of where their career paths are going to take them. Because as the project manager, you've asked them, well, what do you think you're going to do after this? And then with any luck, they're going to tell you. And if you can provide them with some training as a reward, that's a good thing. That will help motivate them to finish a project up on time, early, whatever the case might be, but it also help them like you and want to work for you again because you've got a proven track record of helping them out. And that's all motivation and things that we're going to be getting into in a little while and some of the motivational theories. All right, so we'll get into that in a little bit. So let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about team-building activities. There's a whole bunch of things. We've got a few slides on team-building activities here. Basically, as just as it sounds, you've all been on perhaps some type of team-building activity. You try to do something that is going to allow folks to get to know each other in some way, shape, or form. It's simply getting a diverse group of people to work together in the most efficient manner possible. And sometimes you can do that with a game. You can do that with some fun things to do outside of work, whatever the case might be. You can do it inside as well as part of staff meetings. You can have people help each other out and do some team building that way. So it all depends on your organization and what you have the money to do. There's an exam point down there. The big red bullet down there is an exam point from my slide. That means it's been on the exam in the last couple of months, and as people let me know they've passed the exam, I ask them, well, generally, is there anything you've seen in there that you did not expect or, or things that you've seen in any of my slides you want to cement the fact, yeah, that's still there, and that's what the red dots do. So in this case, the big exam point here says the exam tends to focus more on the theories behind team building and the characteristics of effective teams than it does on the actual details of the team building thing. So more into theories, what's the general theory of this, the general theory of that, won't necessarily get down into a particular element is part of which theory. You might see it, but they don't tend to do that so much as they used to. Okay? And the other term I couldn't remember was hygiene term. It was motivators and this hygiene you're going to see in a little while. All those things, extra training and things like that, that's an example of hygiene that make it nice to work in a place that you want to work in. I knew I'd get there eventually with that word. I was having a brain cramp for a moment. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll uncramp my brain here. And we'll talk about another thing. It's called Tuckman's Ladder nowadays because a guy named Dr. Bruce Tuckman developed this 10 or so years ago, and it describes how teams develop and mature through what were the four stages of development. But over the last few years, a lot of people have been plagued with this, and Tuckman himself has added a fifth phase called the journey. What I'm going to do is read through these quickly to start off in case you don't have the slides in front of you. There are five phases. They are starting at the bottom of the slide. If you have the slide in front of you, they are forming, storming, norming, performing, and now adjourning. I'll say that again. Forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. 
Okay, so we start at the bottom. The forming stage down there comes about when you're first forming your team up. It's when all the members are brought together. Maybe they don't know each other, so you have to introduce them to each other, maybe a little bit of history, things along those lines. They really don't know who they can trust. They've never worked together, things along those lines. So they're going to be, oh, geez, who's this guy? Who's this, who's this lady? Why do they look like that? People are going to form, can't judge a book by the cover, saying they're going to form their judgments just by looking at the cover and it's going to take some time to get inside the cover, if you will, and see the inside of the person to see what's going on. So during the stage, there probably will be an all-business formal approach at dealing with each other until they have an idea of who they can trust, who they can't trust. And as they start making that trek up the ladder, if you will, then they move into the storming stage. This is where people are going to jockey for position. That's why the word storming comes in. Someone's going to try to take a leadership position or a power position. They want to go, well, I'm not the highest technology person here. I know more than all the rest of you for about a specific aspect of the project, so I'm the expert on that. And people can argue or whatever. Top dog is another way to look at that. But people are going to buy for position. They're going to bounce back and forth. They're going to fight. They're going to hug. They're going to do whatever they're going to do to work it out. And to the greatest extent, you have to help them do that. This is where most of so the conflict comes in. We talked about conflict in the last session. So you're going to have to look at what's going on and resolve the conflict as quickly as you can by talking to these folks, saying, hey, you've got to work through this, and getting them to work through it, make some things happen. You might have to apply some of the resolution strategies that we talked about last time in order to get through the storming period. And then once you're through the storming period, we move into the norming section. Now, this is where things calm down. People actually agree, yeah, John Smith is the expert on such and such an aspect of the project. So he's a recognized expert. No one's going to question that anymore. They'll go to John Smith if they need a question on, on thing X. They'll go to Mary Jones if they need something else, depending on what Mary's an expert in. So they'll bounce back and forth a little bit. They'll deal with project problems instead of people problems. In the front end, it's all about the project and maybe not so much about the people. But now in the norming stage, they know how to deal with each other. Now the people problem begin to bubble up. Not because they weren't there before, because people were so busy working on the project side of things, they never saw the people's problems. Now they can see those, and now they can begin to make decisions. And they might even make them jointly, because they trust each other now to a great extent, or to some extent maybe, and they're able to make some mutual decisions. So that part will work out very well. Then we move to the performing step of the ladder. Now, in the performing step of the ladder, things are great. The team is just humming right along. They're very productive. They're very effective. You can actually trust them to make almost all the decisions, depending upon your leadership style, which we'll get into in a little bit as well. But if you are the type of manager that can delegate the authority to make decisions, you can have a self-directing team. Not that we're talking about Agile here. But you can have a self-directing team, even waterfall. You let your team make all the decisions because they've got their vision. They know what they need to do, and it's just a matter of getting there. All right? So decisions are made jointly. Team members will exhibit mutual respect and familiarity with each other. Here's where they start going to have beers, going to have lunch, things along those lines, and things like that. You can help that out by bringing pizza in every now and again is a good thing as well. You know, buying lunch for people as time goes on. Whatever part of the world you're in, whatever food is a good thing to bring in for lunch. During a status meeting, hold a status meeting during lunchtime at some point in time, bring in lunch. That's a good thing to do. That makes norming happen pretty quickly. And that makes performing work out pretty well as well. 
Right, so then we're going to up to the next level. That's performing. Now things are really going well. Everything is marching right along. The team is productive, effective. The level of trust is there, and mature development is there. Everyone knows what they're doing. And then the latest addition to this whole thing is adjourning. And with adjourning, that's when the project's done, and people have to split up. And that can be a traumatic experience for some people. So it was added as a stage. Hopefully by this time you as a project manager will have helped folks identify where they're going next. If you're in a functional organization, they have to bounce from one project to the next, things along those lines, or projectized organization as well for the most part. You should be helping them find another project so that they're not out of a job, something along those lines. But there's a set of things that happen in the adjourning phase as well. Any, any question on that? Star 6 to unmute your phone. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on to the next slide. Now we're going to talk about three exam points here that have to do with the basically the Tuckman bladder that we just finished going through. And that first is different teams progress through those stages at different rates. If you've got a team who's never met each other and have to come together for a project, it's going to take a while to work through each phase of the ladder, each step of the ladder. But if this is project number two or five with a pretty much the same project team, they already know each other. You probably won't even do a storming, maybe a little bit of norming, and then because the project's different, maybe the visions are different, and maybe some of the power and leadership changes a little bit depending upon the project. But if they know each other already, that might be easy to do. You never know. It would be easy to pull off. So they'll go through the bottom stuff really quickly, spend a little time, and they get right to performing rather quickly. All right, so that's a good thing. The second example here is that any time a new member is brought into the team, no matter what team it is, even, the, even a highly performing team, you really will need to start all over again. You really will start all over again because these people really don't know this person for the most part, most likely, unless if they've already worked with them before on Project 1 and now we're on Project 4 and they're bringing this person back in, well, chances are you'll be have a little bit of storming at the bottom and then you go right to the top. But you have to start over no matter what and pull them in and get everything back up so that everybody's at the same level. And the final example down here is, according to Tuckman, leaders really need to adapt their leadership style as the teams develop in maturity. And you're going to see that in a little bit in a few slides. And the example I have here, in the early stages, you're going to be very directive, very dictatorial, perhaps. You see the word dictatorship in a couple of slides from now. But as you get up into the performing, you're going to delegate everything, and things are going to be moving along very nicely. Okay, so there's that. Any questions on any of that? Star 6 to unmute your phone. Moving on to the next slide. One more slide on team building activities, and then we'll talk about some other stuff here. All right, then there's a team focus. And an example here, the team members know and understand the goals and objective of your project and things will move along better. The team has the vision, shares the vision even better than having it. Sharing it is a much better thing. Then your project is going to move along much better. All right? So understand the direction you're going, what has to be done. People use their filters that we'll talk about in communication in, I would say, two slides from now. And they'll be able to figure out what's going on. And you, as the project manager, need to use solid communication skills to communicate things to your team. So let's go over and begin to talk about communication, moving on to the next slide, because communication is extremely important. As a project manager, you'll hear the idiom, 80% of a project manager's job is communication, and it really is. Uh, there's many different ways to communicate, 
And what you have to do is understand how to communicate and which ways to communicate. So as we do that, we already know that, that communication is the process of exchanging information. And it can go in both directions, forward and backward, to you and from you, and to and from your team members as well. And it has three elements involved in each communication, be that in verbal, writing, whatever the case might be. There is a sender, there is a message that's being sent, and there is a receiver. And those are the three elements. Now, for the sender, that's the person who's actually putting some information together, hopefully in a nice, clear, and concise manner. And that information really wants to be complete for the medium that it's using. If it's verbal, it's going to be different than if it's a presentation or a white paper. White papers, as you might be aware, are very detailed descriptions, discussions of an aspect of something where verbally you're going to do the 30-second elevator pitch. You might have heard before we have 30 seconds to describe an element of your project or your project in general. So it's very high level depending upon who you're talking to. But no matter what, you need to make sure your message is relevant to the receiver. And to do that, you have to make sure that your message is coded correctly. And the message is the information that's being sent from you to the receiver, and it's also coming back from the receiver to you if there's a response. And as I mentioned, it can be written, it can be verbal, nonverbal, formal, informal. If you're internal, you might be a bit less formal than if you were external. You can also do communications horizontally between people in your projects or between one engineer on a project to another engineer on another project or one carpenter on one project to another carpenter on another project, things along those lines. Or they can be vertical, sending a message up the chain, up to your vice president or up to your CEO or something along those lines. There you're probably going to be a little bit more formal depending upon the company that you're in. It all depends on your corporate culture. So pay attention to your corporate culture. For the exam, if you're going up the ladder, you should be more formal than if you're going sideways to a peer. All right? And then there's a receiver. Now, the receiver is the person for whom the message is intended. Now, if it's an individual person, then you should be tailoring your message for that individual. But if you're sending to a group of people, then you have to be a little bit more general or even maybe a little bit more specific depending upon whether the person, if you're sending to one person, maybe they already have a certain context already built in, so you don't have to provide context. But if you're sending to a larger group of people, maybe some of those people don't have the context of what your message is all about. So you need to provide some context. Otherwise, they'll have no clue what you're talking about. So you need to make sure that the context is there for the receiver that you intend to receive this message so that they can understand. It's their responsibility to understand the information, but you have to make sure you provide them with enough detail, enough information so they can understand. Okay? So with that, we're going to move on to the next slide, and there's a little graphic here. Basically, it is a horizontal box taking up most of the slide. Inside the box, there are two other rectangles on either end of the box, and the left-hand rectangle is labeled sender. The right-hand rectangle is labeled receiver. Inside of each of those two, the top and the bottom of each of those two boxes, there are two other boxes. On the sender side, the top one is labeled encode, the bottom one is labeled decode, and on the receiver side, the top one is labeled decode, the bottom one is labeled encode. And there's a line going horizontally from the sender encode box over to the receiver decode box. So it makes sense. The sender is sending a message. They're encoding, building the message. The message is the horizontal line going across here. 
and then just before it hits the receiver box, you see a set of vertical lines. And it's labeled noise, but it's also labeled filter. These are the things that you have to be aware of when you're sending messages to certain individuals. You have to know what their filters are. That people you're sending message to, maybe they don't want to receive a two-page email to talk about something. If you send them a two-page email, they'll read the first three sentences, and that's it. All right? So you don't want to be sending that person a two-page email. They're not going to read it. And if you're trying to get something accomplished at the end, they're never going to see it. So you have to be very succinct when you send a message to that individual. That's part of their filter. Maybe they don't want to see phone calls. They'll only do things by text message. Folks are doing everything by text messages nowadays, especially if you're 14 or 16. But we're talking about project managers, so you might be a bit older than that and maybe not using text messaging so much. But the filters are still there. So you have to watch what type of medium people use, they like to use to receive their message. Okay, so the message has gotten through the filters of the receiver, and they've decoded the message. All right, now they are most likely going to build a response. So we drop down in the right-hand receiver box to the encode rectangle, and then the receiver is going to encode a message, be it feedback or whatever the case might be, the feedback or another message totally, doesn't matter what it is, and it's going to go across, and then it's going to run into a, a similar set of vertical noise filters that are your filters. So it would be nice if they knew what your filters were as well. And then you're going to be using your filters to decode their message, and then you'll either understand or not understand, depending upon your filters. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions on that? Star 6, if you have a question. All right, I'm going to move on since there are no questions. All right, so that helps communication. And once you get communication going, the positive side of communication has to do with effective team characteristics. Once you make it happen, you will have, you hopefully will have, there's six different things, seven different things here, better conflict resolution, hopefully more commitment to the project because they understand what's going on, commitment to the project team members and the project managers. First commitment is to the higher goals of the project, but then a commitment to the individuals, the people involved in the project. It would be nice if that allowed high job satisfaction. Obviously, since you're paying attention to communication, you have enhanced communication, and maybe all that stuff is going to begin to evoke a sense of belonging and purpose, and in the final end of things, you're going to have a successful project because you've communicated well and people understand what's going on. But let's move on to the next slide and be aware of the negatives you have to watch out for because some individuals, no matter how you try to communicate with them, they're not motivated to hear what you're trying to say. So you have to work out that motivation, what's going on with them, and try to motivate them to understand and do better. Maybe they have a don't-care attitude, who knows, and you have to try to turn that don't-care attitude around. Or perhaps they feel that the project work they're working on just isn't satisfying for them. They've done this forever. They want to do something new. Well, you have to take that into consideration. If you wind up with a status meeting that turns into whining sessions, well, that's a clue that something's wrong, and you need to go fix that. And it's because you're going to have poor communication and most likely a lack of respect and trust for you, the project manager. And so just be aware of all that stuff. All right, we move on to the next slide, which is ground rules. These are the things that you want to set up very early in the project. You, the project manager will set these up, and it's going to describe to the project team just what you expect from them, what is acceptable team behavior. And it can be a whole list of things, 
How are you going to handle things in meetings? Should you always be on time? If we're going to have a five-minute late rule or something like that, what reporting are you going to be doing and what issues can be handled around reporting? How to offer suggestions for improvements and other things and a whole variety of things. It's just how are you going to coordinate your basic project? Is, uh, and it can be set up in a ground rule so that by outlining the ground rules, then the team will understand what the expectations are around acceptable behavior, and you don't, they don't have to guess. They'll know right away. You don't have to have that little stumble, oh, gee, my bad, I forgot about that. They'll know it already, and they won't do that negative thing, you know, whatever that happens to be. Okay, and let's see. Now let's move on to the next tool and technique. The next is co-location. With co-location, this is a much less a bigger deal now than what it used to be in the PMBOK. And that basically, if you are able to co-locate, then teams function a whole lot more effectively when they're co-located than if they're spread out. Almost all of my projects are with people who are not in the same building or even the same country that I am in. So my company's developed a set of things that we can use for non-co-located people. And we do a lot of video conferencing. I was on three video conferences today. Technology is really fantastic now. So co-location isn't as big a deal as it used to be, but I was on three video conferences today. So between Skype, Google Hangouts, Blue Jeans, Life Size, a whole bunch of other video conferencing things, whatever the case might be, a whole bunch of things that you can have video meetings in. You have still have to worry about time of day because if you're on the other side of the planet, you know, talking to somebody in India or China, who's 12, 13, 14 hours out from you, someone's going to have to be doing things in evening hours, nighttime hours for the most part, unless if they're working strange shift hours, but it can happen. So co-location as people are spread out. So it's better to have people close by so that they can work better together. As much as chat and things like that are there, people still are influenced by the drive-by conversation. They're walking down the hall, they see you, hey, and they ask a question. They can still do that in the chat room using Internet Relay Chat or Link or just now the same thing. They can still do that, but they have to consciously think, oh, I need to talk to Dana today, where if they see me, if they walk down the hall and they see me sitting in my office or they see me coming the other direction in the hallway, they can, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you a question. Just be aware of all that. It's more challenging to be remote, but it's not impossible. You can still get a lot of things done. And if people are sort of co-located, like if they're across town, then it's almost even worse because then people want to get in the car and drive. You know, take public transportation and move from building one to building two if it's across town. So it actually sucks up time of the day in transportation. That may not be necessary. So see how that all works out. But you can use other methods of making things work. As I mentioned, email, chat, instant messaging, video calls, things like that. The thing with all those things that aren't visual is you don't see the nonverbal communication that goes on when you have video. You're standing in front of them, or that's why video conferencing is such a big deal. And it's pretty easy to do one-on-one -on -one video conferencing now. It's not wicked expensive. I live right outside of Boston, so you're going to hear me say wicked a lot. It's not wicked expensive to do video conferencing. You can do it for free in a lot of cases using Google Plus and Hangouts and things along those lines. A lot of companies are doing that. And then you can see all the nonverbal stuff. You can see the facial expressions. You can see the body language and things like that. You're saying something, and the person on the other end has got their eyes roll back and their face pointing up to the ceiling. You know they don't want to hear what you're saying, right? Well, you can't hear that on a conference call, but you can see that on a video call. Right? So using video is a good way to do things now. And down the bottom, the very bottom, is an exam bullet down there. As far as the exam goes, you should always, always, always choose co-location 
over geographical dispersion. The PMI still loves co-location as the primary way to do things. All right, so let's move on here to the next slide, and we'll talk about the next tool and technique, which is recognition and reward. We've got a few slides on that, I believe. So it's just like it sounds, it involves employing techniques to improve your team's performance and keeping them motivated, recognizing what they do. Motivation helps people work more effectively. They're, hey, I like my job. I want to do better, things like that. There's clear expectations, clear procedures, and there are certain motivational tools that you need to use that we're going to get into in a couple of slides from now. Let's go to the next slide and talk a little bit more about recognition and reward because there are formal ways to recognize and promote desirable behavior. As the project manager or team leader or whatever the case might be, needs to understand what those are and promote the right behavior by recognizing the good performance and bad performance and dealing with both. So you want to develop and document the criteria for the reward you're going to be providing, especially if they're monetary rewards. Most of the time, monetary rewards have to do with performance. You've made so many sales for the quarter, for the year, for whatever. You've finished so much percent under budget or so much percent ahead of schedule, things along those lines. You set up a grid, if you will, and lay it out so it's very clear. And when you want to lay it out, you have to let them know how they're doing. They need to be confident that they might actually be able to achieve some of those rewards. And if you set a hurdle that is so high they're never going to get there, we'll talk about that in a moment as well, then they're not going to be motivated. You can kill morale by doing that, so you've got to be, be aware of that. They should be proportional to whatever the achievement is. Don't give a million dollars for a little thing, or don't give $2 for a big thing. You can give a lunch for something like that, or a certificate, or a T-shirt, or whatever the case might be. A lot of people say they don't like T-shirts, but they'll take it anyway, whatever the case might be. Consider individual preferences and cultural differences when using rewards and recognitions. And the cultural thing, or personal thing as well, some people just don't like to be singled out for anything. So maybe you can give them a reward, but just maybe not do it publicly if you know they hate that and it'll cause problems if you single them out publicly. Be sensitive to that. While others, if you don't reward them publicly, they're going to be upset. Okay? So look at the individual, do things accordingly. All right? And understand the theories on motivation that we're going to get into in a few slides from now. You need to know those theories so that you can tailor what you're doing for rewards and recognition and everything else for that matter which is why all the reward and recognition and the motivational theories are one session here in our series because they take up a lot of time. So let's move on so we don't take up too much more time. And we'll actually begin to get into a bunch of different slides on the motivation tool and technique. There's a bunch of them here. Okay, first off, we're going to say that motivation is two different types. There is extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivations are specific to the individual it's what each individual wants to see. Some people are naturally driven to either do well or not so well, and you've got to deal with those things. There may be some cultural or religious things involved in there as well because that's kind of personal. Cultural maybe not so much, but certainly religious is a personal thing you have to be aware of. And then there are extrinsic things. These are material rewards and things along those lines that you can provide to your team members, maybe bonuses, company cars, things along those lines, gift certificates, that training thing that I talked about, a reward. That's always good for technical people who have to be certified in something to give them the training that they need for the next level of certification, something along those lines. All right, so that's all for that slide. Let's move on to the next slide. And then we're going to get into a bunch of theories. There are six of them that we're going to be talking about in this session. I'll read them off. 
in case you're raking the leaves or something like that. They are Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, Hertzberg and Hygiene Theories, Expectancy Theory, Achievement Theory, Tannenbaum and Schmidt Continuum Management Theory, and finally, Situational Theory. There's a lot of words there, aren't there? Let's move on to the next slide, and we're going to hit these one at a time. First is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You've all probably seen this before. It's a triangle. You start at the bottom of the triangle with all the things that you need, all the physiological things to be able to exist. Can you breathe? Do you have air? Do you have food? Do you have water? Do you have the ability to fulfill yourself sexually? Do you need sleep? Do you have a place to go to the bathroom? Things along those lines. Stuff Just to exist, you need these things starting at the bottom of here. And the whole idea of the exam point down there is you cannot go to the next higher level up until you have achieved most of the lower level needs. Not all, but most. Then the next level up, safety. So security and things along those lines, health safety and things along those lines. Then the next level up is love and belonging. So you want to have some friends, you want to have some family, you want to have a partner, a marriage partner, a sexual partner, whatever the case might be. And then esteem, now you're getting up to the top. Now you have all this lower-level stuff. You're feeling really good about yourself. You can build self-esteem. You can build confidence. You can have some achievement. People will respect you, perhaps, and you respect other people as well because you're feeling good about yourself. And then finally at the top is self-actualization, and that's where you are doing very well and you're able to help people out. You've got the right level of morality, creativity, spontaneity, you can solve problems, things along those lines, accept things the way they are, accept change, and things along those lines. So that's the hierarchy of needs. For the exam, all you have to worry about is, as the exam point down there says, you can't go higher until most of the lower needs are satisfied. Pretty easy. Moving on to the next slide, then we have the Hertzberg and hygiene theories. There's two pieces to this one. It's developed by Frederick Hertzberg. And the two pieces are hygiene factors that I talked about a little while ago and motivators. Now, the hygiene factors, as an exam point, the hygiene factors and motivators have been on the exam. Hygiene factors are work environment issues that prevent dissatisfaction. How much you're paid, the conditions of the work environment, the relationship with your peers and your management. And people ask, well, why would pay be considered a hygiene factor and not a motivator? To some people, it might be a motivator. But Hertzberg postulated that pay is a hygiene factor because over long term, as long as people feel they're being paid the same as everybody else, then it's just another work environment thing. And it's not something about one person beating another person out. Now, there's still people who will feel that way, but in general, Hertzberg did not. And then there's motivators, as I mentioned. Motivators deal with the substance of the work itself and the job satisfaction that an individual derives from performing whatever the functions of the job is. And because they can do those things, they're satisfied because they're doing a good job. Everything is going along fine. There's no rework. There's no bad things coming about. And they can advance from one level to the next job career calendar-wise, career ladder-wise is the word I wanted. And then they can move along. So that's a good thing, and that's a motivator, okay? Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about expectancy theory. This was first proposed by Victor Vroom. i got three exam bullets here, and we'll say the first one is the expectation of a positive outcome drives the motivation. You're expecting something good to happen. If I do this thing, I'm going to get that thing, all right? So they're going to work to get that thing done at an acceptable level, at an acceptable quality, an acceptable time frame and acceptable quality. 
All right, the second exam point down there, it says that the strength of the expectancy drives the behavior. So the example down there is if you tell a two-year-old if they put their toys back in their toy box, they're going to get a cookie or some sort of treat, whatever the case might be. Chances are they're going to put their toys away, and you're going to give them a cookie, and that's great. So every time they put their toys away, they're going to expect a cookie or a treat. Now, once that cookie goes away, that's something else you've got to deal with, but that's what the expectancy is all about. You're going to need to change what they're expecting for putting their toys away. All right. Then on the other side of that, if you, tell, if you put your toys away or you do a good job, I'm going to send you all to Hawaii, and you know that Hawaii or a trip someplace is way out of budget, and it's never going to happen. So the hurdle for whatever the item is is set so high that they're never going to be able to achieve it, then they're not even going to try. It's not a motivator because they don't ever expect to reach that level until they get that thing done. All right, and then the third exam point here is people become what you expect of them, you as the project manager. So as a project manager, you should really praise your people, treat them well, give them a lot of good praise, make sure that they understand they are valuable contributors to what's going on. And chances are they'll take that positive vibe, if you will, and they'll perform better than if you treated them negatively, you criticize them all the time, can't you do anything right type of thing. You've set low expectations regarding their performance. They're likely to live up to those low expectations. So that's a bad thing. They're expecting to be treated badly, so they're going to perform badly. It's pretty easy to figure that out. That's all that is. Any questions on anything so far? Star 6 to unmute your phone. I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about achievement theory. This was first put out by David McClelland. He says that people are motivated by the need for three things, and that is achievement, power, and affiliation. has been on the exam recently, so you see three exam bullets there on the slide. And achievement is just like it sounds, the need to achieve or succeed. Pretty easy. Power is they want to be able to feel that they can influence other people. They want to be regarded in such a way that people look to them for something. For expertise, expert judgment is probably the largest ITTO in the PMBOK guide. Well, these guys want to be the expert. These people want to be the experts. So they want that expert power. We'll talk about power in a couple of slides. And then there's affiliation. Here they want to be known as belonging to a certain group, a certain project. Oh, you're involved in the XYZ project? Wow, that's cool and such. So the camaraderie and the whole aura, there's a whole good positive feeling for being involved in a specific project to some extent, depending on the company. So the affiliation piece is strong. And the strength of the need for achievement, power, and affiliation will drive the behavior. Okay, so that's achievement theory. Any questions on that guy? I'm going to move on to two of the newer ones that came in with the fifth edition of the PMBOK guide. The first is the Tannenbaum-Schmidt Continuum Management Theory. Yeah, you said it right that time. Cool. This describes the level of authority a manager exerts on the team versus the freedom a team has to make decisions. Stated differently, as we talked about in Tuckman's Ladder, that team that's down in the forming stage, I mentioned the manager is probably going to be more direct with them, more directing, better way to say that with them. That's what this is all about. So a new team, more directing, a performing team, then not so much. And that's what all this boils down to. Tannenbaum and Schmidt describe seven levels of freedom, ranging from that dictatorship at the bottom to the freedom and delegation up at the top. The exam doesn't require you to get into all seven of those areas so much as a lot to remember there. 
Remember that the level of freedom that you use as the project manager depends on the maturity and the experience of both the team and of you. You have to be able to exude the right level of confidence to allow your team to understand what they're capable of doing, what you expect of them. And as the team progresses, as time goes on, they're going to get better. And you can, I'll say, lay off a little bit in what you're doing. Right? And the last bullet down there, the manager is always engaged at level of this model, but their authority level will decrease as they delegate decision-making responsibility to the team. So as I mentioned, even up at that top level of a performing team, the manager is still there, still knows what's going on, but they're watching. They're not directing. That's one way to look at that. Okay, and then I'm going to move on to the next slide because we have something similar with situational leadership theory. This is put together by Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard. This came out in the mid-'70s as a similar way to look at things, but they used four styles in theirs. Then it basically winds up being similar to the other one, but basically a new employee, someone who's brand new to a team or to a company, is going to need more guidance, more direction than someone who's been around for a while right, and knows how to do the task. It's pretty straightforward. Then they sort of went off and did their own thing, and the thing is sort of stuck with the PMI for the exam is Blanchard's side of things for situational leadership. He uses four styles of leadership that depend on the situation. You see them there, directing, coaching, supporting, and delegating. I'm going to move to the next slide and talk about those a little bit more. Another ladder, if you will, as we get through things here, in that we start at the bottom, someone first coming into the organization or first coming into the project. You as a manager are going to be more directive. So you're going to provide step-by-step procedures, perhaps, for what's going on, for the task at hand, and watch them get it done. And then as they are more familiar with what's going on, they've got some experience, not a lot, then you're going to be coaching. You're going to say, yeah, doing a great job. Keep that going. You're doing great. And fantastic. Then you move up to level three, to the supportive side of things. They've done it. You don't have to watch them anymore. You know they're capable of doing things. You just want to make sure that you watch what the end time is. And toward the end time, are they done yet? And if they are, fantastic. And if they're not, provide a little bit more coaching. And then finally, there's delegating. And this is when you're pretty much still watching, as I mentioned before, but now you're letting them make decisions. You're not providing them with much input at all other than here's a list of stuff that needs to be done this week. Let me know when you're done, you know, type of thing. And that's all there is to that. Pretty straightforward. They all sort of intermix and dovetail, if you will, between each other and such. So any questions on any of those motivational things before I move on to leadership and management? Hearing nothing, I'm going to move on to leadership and management. We have five things here under leadership versus management. I'll read them off. They are theory X and theory Y, then theory Z, and then contingency theory, and then leading versus managing, and then power. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll hit Theory X and Theory Y. This is put together by Douglas McGregor, and he put forth two models that explained how managers deal with their teams. First is Theory X, and his example is for all the rest of this stuff here, because it's still on pretty much every exam to a great extent. But Theory X, managers believe that most people don't like to work and will try to avoid work whenever possible. Hence, you have to watch them, and you have to dictate to them what's going on every step of the way and put rigid controls on various people. They believe people are motivated only by punishment, money, or position. And they're not going to do what you need them to do without being driven to do it by you, not by them, but by you. And then there's theory why. Managers believe that people are interested in performing the best that they can do 
given they have the right level of motivation and proper expectations are set. These managers are going to be very supportive of their teams and concerned about the team members, and they listen to what's going on. They're very sensitive about what's happening. And theory why managers believe that people are creative and committed to what's going on with the project, whether that vision goals of the project are, and they're likely to seek out and maybe do even better than what the goals are because they're happy people. So I didn't remember these two things. All this stuff is going to be on your, it should be on your brain dump, by the way, as well, all these motivational theories. And on your brain dump, you have to remember what's going on. My brain dump has all these on here. There's a funny little story. One of my past study groups, someone came to me and with their brain dump said, what do you think? And I looked on their brain dump, and for theory X and theory Y, instead of the word for theory X and theory Y, they had a little stick figure drawn. And the theory X, the negative one, it was drawn as a man, as a straight stick figure, and there were X's in the eyes and an upside-down frowny face for the face. That was X theory because men are negative. And there was, this was a woman, by the way. So men are negative, so it should do it that way. But the theory Y one was a woman, so it had a dress on, and it had Y's for the eyes and a smiley face. And that's how she would tell the difference between them. And that worked for her, which is great. It took up less space on the brain dump, faster to do, so great. Whatever works for you, you know, all this stuff should be on your brain dump. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. Then there's Theory Z. This was developed by William Uchi, and this basically theorizes that as time goes on, if you work for the same company for a long time, you develop loyalty to that organization, and you will do better because you're in that organization. Now, the way people bounce around so much nowadays, it isn't so much a big deal, but back in the 1980s, when this theory was postulated you know, over in Japan, jobs over there were often given for life. Probably not so much anymore there even, but this still in the exam. Okay, so just be aware that basically this theory results because the person's motivated because they're working for the company for life, they're going to do better because they know they have a steady job and they want to be satisfied in that job. Hence, they're going to have high employee satisfaction and morale. Okay, there's that one. Then there's contingency theory on the next slide. This is a combination of why behaviors and the hygiene theory. And the big exam bullet summarizes the whole thing. People are motivated to achieve levels of competency and will continue to be motivated by this even after reaching competency. They basically, they know their job, they like what they're doing, and they just keep on rolling no matter what. And that's contingency theory. Their level of competency is contingent on the fact they love their job, and they're moving along well. Move on to the next slide. Speaking of moving on, and we're going to talk about leadership versus management now. And the difference here between leadership and management is leadership is at the 50,000-foot level, while management is down in the weeds, if you will, of getting things done. So on the slide here, the first line of each section, one leadership and one in management, is an exam point, and then under leadership, the exam point there is leadership is all about imparting vision and rallying people around that vision. That's the 50,000-foot thing. We're going to do X. I don't care how you get there, but we're going to do X. And these people are leaders. They have power and they have politics. They can provide what's needed in order to make people really think they're going to get to where they need to be. They have the knack for getting others to do what needs to be done. And they use two techniques. One, as I mentioned, is power. And that's the ability to get people to do what they may not ordinarily do, but because you have asked them to do it, they will do it because you have power. We'll get into power in another slide for now. Oh, and there's politics as well. Politics comes about because you are the CEO 
of something, you're at the 50,000-foot level, but because you're the CEO and you ask someone to do something, they're going to do it. They may not agree with your style or the way you want things done, but because you're the boss, they're going to do it. All right? And then there's managers. You know, managers are definitely down in that weeds I was talking about. They're down at ground level. They're stuck in the mire, the weeds, of what's going on. They're generally task-oriented and concerned with issues such as plans, controls, budgets, procedures, policies, all that stuff, if you will. They tend to be generalists in a broad sense. They have good planning and organizational skills, maybe. And their primary goal as a project manager, besides communication, is satisfying the stakeholders' needs. Because if you don't satisfy your stakeholders' needs in your project, you won't have a successful project. They understand that. And they possess motivational skills and the ability to recognize and reward behavior. So that's the difference between leadership and management. 50,000-foot level, down in the weeds. Let's move on to the next slide. We've got a few slides left and we're done. We're going to talk about power of leaders. As an exam point here, power is the ability to influence others to do what you want them to do whether they tend to see the vision or agree with it or not, still going to do it. It's mostly done in a positive manner, but it can be done in a negative manner. If you have power, then you're going to use that in a way to convince others to do things in a certain way. The kind of power they use to accomplish those goals depends upon who they are, their personality, their values, the company culture, and your personality, your personal values as well. Leaders tend not to worry so much about the way you want to do things, your personality. They should, but they tend not to. And then as a project manager, you might be able to recognize several forms of power to get things done. So let's go to the next slide and talk about power. There are basically four types. I'll read them off first. There's reward power, also called penalty power. There's expert power. There's formal power, that's also called legitimate power. And then there's referent power. So back up to the top of the slide, reward or penalty power, just like it sounds. You have the ability to grant bonuses or incentive awards on a job well done. Conversely, you can threaten with consequences if expectations are not met. So reward or penalty. Expert power comes with someone who is deemed to be very knowledgeable about something. Best crane operator in the country or in the state, whatever the case might be the best technical resource, whatever the case might be. You know your specific subject matter, so people come to you for opinions and you can exert influence over those people because of that, because of your expertise. Then it's formal or legitimate power. That's where you are in the organization chart. The higher up you are in the organization chart, the more formal or legitimate power you have, and you can influence people in how they do things because you're the boss. And that's hopefully not the only reason, but that is the main reason, because you're the boss. And then there's referent power. Now, referent power is inferred to the influencer by their subordinate. So it's sort of like the expert, but if someone's got a really strong personality and they're a really caring person, people on the team might go to them because this person is a really caring person and they have great ideas. So that's referent power. It's got maybe not so much to do with the project, but they know how to motivate people just because they have that natural soft skill ability. Some people have built-in soft skill talents while others don't. And this person has built-in soft skills talent, and you can use that to help things along with the project if you can recognize it and direct it, if you will. So that's what reference power is all about. Any questions on that before I move along? Okay. 
Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about leadership styles. There are four of those. I'll read them off. They're autocratic or dictatorship, laissez-faire, democratic, or situational. On the top here, autocratic or dictators, just like it sounds, they're going to make every decision no matter what, no input or very little input from the team. Do it this way because this is the way I want it done, this is how long I want it to take, and such. There's no leeway is one way to say that. Then there's the laissez-faire style, hands-off, if you will. Leadership style is just the opposite from autocratic. Let the team drive decisions. They'll allow self-directed teams, be it agile or waterfall. It doesn't matter. And they may provide some recommendations, but they're not going to be so involved in what's going on. And then there's democratic. These are the people who will ask for opinions. They're still going to direct things, but they'll ask people for opinions and consider not even ask for opinions, but they will consider using the opinion in their decisions. So that's a good thing. And when that happens, probably most of the people are involved in the decision-making process. And then the situational stuff, the stuff that I went through a few slides ago with Blanchard's situational leadership model using the four styles of directing, coaching, supportive, and delegating. Okay, so all of that we've gone over, and those are the types of leadership styles. And next slide also... We'll move on to the next slide. We'll also talk about a little bit more about leadership styles. Is the style transactional or transformational? And this concept was first developed by a guy named Bernard Bass. Basically, it describes transactional leaders as that autocratic, activity-focused, autonomous person who's going to make sure they can control over everything. And it's transactional. Each thing has a start point, something's transacted, and an end point, and then maybe you get a reward, maybe you don't. Very situational. And then there are transformational leaders. They tend to focus on relationships rather than activities. They're collaborative, and they really inspire the teams to perform. They say, hey, there's that self-directing team thing again. You can delegate what you need to the team, and they're going to get it done. You know they're going to get it done. So you allow them to do that. The BAS describes transformational leaders as empowering and being concerned with social justice, equity, and fairness. They're all high-level stuff, if you will. All right, so that is all the motivational and leadership stuff. Any questions on any of that before I move on? Star 6, unmute your phone. We're almost done. Since I don't hear anything, I'm going to move on. I'm doing one more tool and technique, and that is personnel assessment tools. These are the tools that are going to help you figure out what's going on. And maybe there's a checklist someplace that you check off what's happened and what needs to happen. And you might, in that checklist, have the ability to identify a person or a project team. It was, has to do with team first, but the individuals as well are in there. The team strengths, the team weaknesses, and then a little bit more detail on communication, interpersonal skills, and things along those lines, how the team works on things like that, and how the individuals work on things like preferences and decision-making skills, things along those lines. And you're going to get down to the detail level of just how things are moving along. There's various tools to do that. You can use surveys, checklists, ask people. Let's go to managers, ask stakeholders what's going on, survey them. Maybe you're going to do some specific assessments from individuals. Maybe you're going to have some structured interviews. There's ability tests, there's focus groups. If you really want to get down to things, you know, decision-based techniques, things along those lines, it depends on your organization. But basically, these are the tools that might show up on the exam, the surveys and the specific assessments, 
ability tests and focus groups, just ways to assess what's going on and so you can have a better understanding of what's happening in your project and determine what level of trust and commitment and things like that are going on that you have to do to make your team more effective. Okay, so with that, now we're done with the tools and techniques finally. And I've got a couple of slides left and we're done. So let's talk about the outputs. Moving on, let's talk about the outputs. There are two outputs. I'll read them off in case you are doing the dishes or doing the ironing. They are team performance assessment and enterprise environmental factor updates. Moving on to the next slide, team performance assessment is just that. You've done, you've used those tools we just finished talking about and all the motivational things and you've done the measurements and this is the output of that, the ranking and rating, if you will, of your team do you have to do? You'll rate them how well they communicate, how well do they get things done, what's going well, what's not going well, what do you need to do in order to move your team forward to the next level. All that stuff is in this assessment. And by doing this assessment, you're going to determine where your team needs to improve. And that training thing we talked about earlier, maybe some of your team members need training on a specific aspect of something, and this is where you're going to be able to say, oh, we need training there, and make it happen. All right, and then for the final slide of this session, we will talk about enterprise environmental factors updates. Now, I'll remind you that enterprise environmental factors are the things that you cannot change because you work in the environment that you work in. All right, so they include things like personnel policies. Because you work in a large company, maybe you can't change how personnel is dealt with. Or maybe you can't change the way employee training records are kept or the forms that you're supposed to use to do all of this stuff. But if you can come up with something better, you can let them know you've come up with something better, and maybe, maybe they will consider changing it. But it doesn't hurt to try, but for the most part, it's dictated to you, and you use what they give you. All right, so that is it. The next slide actually says questions. So I'm going to unmute everybody's phone here. Okay, I still see a bunch of you out there. Thank you for hanging in there. We've hit the end. Are there any questions on anything I've gone over? Okay, nothing very good. All right, then. This stuff was relatively straightforward, so it was not too bad. Okay, since there are no other questions, I'll remind you that PM Lessons Learned conducts three conference calls each month. This is the monthly PMP exam study group call and podcast that we're on right now. Why? Because it's the first Thursday of the month. On the second Thursday of the month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned job shot call back, but we need volunteers to make that happen so that folks in transition or with a need to identify potential career paths can go to help each other out. And finally, on the third Thursday of the month, we would love to have our PM Lessons Learned best practices call come back. We need volunteers for that as well. And when it happens, this call provides presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. Okay, so that's it for this session of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. I'll again thank the live participants on this call and everyone that downloads the podcast. We're up over 50,000 downloads of the time we've been doing this, so thanks a bunch for all the folks who have been downloading the podcast over all these years. Make sure you're downloading just the 5th edition podcast. We started these in, oh, I think it was May of 2013, so anything older than that you don't want to download because it's version 4 related. With a few exceptions that are in our website, there's one entry in our blog that says, here are the podcasts that, although while they contain version 4 related material, the material hasn't really changed that much in version 5, so you can still use it. And it's things like the soft skills I talked about, 
project selection techniques, organization techniques, and the like. All right, so I will remind you that we are PMLessonsLearned.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. My name is Dana Safford. So long and keep on learning. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project managers helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearned.com. Till next time, keep on learning.